There we go. All right. So I said last week when we went to Ezekiel 37, I didn't want to take a random passage out of a random book in a random place in the Bible that would be taking something out of its context. So let me not do that today. I want to tell you the context of the book of Romans right now in Romans 6. Romans ultimately is the grand clarification of the gospel according to the Apostle Paul. What Paul does through Romans is he walks the reader, which is the church, through the human condition, which is sin, and he walks the reader through the result of the human condition, which is death. He walks the reader through the law, which is the revealer of the human condition, and he walks the reader through the good news that is the cure for the human condition and the result of the human condition. Personally, this is the most impactful book of the Bible for my life. This book changed my life. This life led to my surrender, real surrender. And it wasn't just for me, like that has happened for countless people. Some of the greatest Christians that have ever lived have been changed by this book from, from Augustine to, to Martin Luther all the way until John Wesley and to even today. So part of me, if this lesson ever seems dramatic or overly exaggerated or like too much, but especially coming from me, but I just want to say that it's because it's, this message is true. And I believe that the word of God brings dead men back to life. By the testimony of this book right here, men come from the grave to the gospel, from grave to grace and from hell to heaven itself. So today, as we walk through Romans 6, I want to ask three questions. You may want to write them down if you have any notes. The first question is, what is sin and death? Simple question. Another simple question, how do we get rid of sin and death? And our third question, what should life look like apart from sin and death? Maybe more than you would think. What is sin and death? This is a broad question, right? This is kind of a broad question. What is sin? What is death? Probably easy for most of us actually to give a generalized answer about, but I think it's actually much deeper. And here's why it's much deeper. Because sin and death is God's biggest enemy. The enemy is crafty and cunning, and I think that sin and death is a lot more complex than we give it credit for. And so I want to kind of dive in and peel back the layers of onions uh, piece by piece. I mentioned Augustine earlier, Augustine, however you want to pronounce it. He said that sin is a word, it is a de deed or a desire that is in opposition to the eternal law of God. And if I may add to that, I want to say that it is a word, it is a deed, it is a desire in the opposition to the eternal law of God in comparison to the author of the eternal law of God, which is God himself, in comparison to a morally perfect, good, complete creator. And so, in other words, you do something that the creator would not want you to do, or you do, do not do something that the creator does want you to do. You understand what I'm saying? So sin is a rebellion against God. It's like you watch a civil war, a revolution. God is saying that all of humanity is pitted up against him and is fighting against him. It's disobedience. It's even a commitment to obey but not devote. Even that would be considered sin, not to be devoted to God. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 makes it very clear what sin is. And it says the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. And he says, I warn you as I have warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so knowing that and still peeling back the onions, the layers of the onion, still want to ask the question and go a little deeper. Romans 6 verses 12 through 14. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. It says, for sin 
will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under law, but you're under grace. A lot of people think that sin is a mere position that you're in. A lot of people think that sin is an act. That's true, but there's more to it. There's something deeper. Sin is not just a position. It is a person. God, Paul here personifies what sin is. Can you tell me who in the world controls your life, dictates your life, reigns over you, or dominates your life? What kind of person does that? What person holds complete authority over you? King, a master, a lord. Sin, what Paul is saying is sin is not just a position, it is a person. It is a slave master that dictates and reigns and dominates your life and decides how you live and actually where you spend eternity. That's the truth of what sin is. And the truth is that all of humanity is fooled into believing that sin is something they can have. You know, there's something that I like to, I don't know. I think sin at its most molecular scale and death at its molecular state is really a search for life in things that will never give you life. It's a search for life and purpose and satisfaction, contentment, fulfillment, and relationships and things that will never grant you one ounce of true life. You know, our actual natural order of creation, you were created to search for life in something. Every single person in this world is searching for life in one thing or the other. God created Adam, and God was Adam's source of life. There was the tree of life. Adam and Eve turned away from God, and they decided to search for life in something else that wasn't God. And that's what, the, that's what separated them from him. But the truth is that God is the only one who can make life worth living. He's the only one that can give satisfaction and contentment. He's the only one who can bring salvation to your soul that you can spend eternity with him. And sometimes sin is inherently obvious. Sometimes it is not obvious. Let me give you an example. Galatians 5, we read it already. You can turn your back on God to chase sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, jealousy, anger, envy, or drunkenness, etc. But most things in this world are not inherently evil. You ever notice that? A lot of things in this world are not inherently evil. Money is not an inherently evil thing, but people chase for life in it. Nor is political power, nor is fame, nor is good looks, nor is sex, nor is a good career, nor is education, nor is family, nor is friends. But the word, the desire, or the deed of making these things your very life source, of making your identity, is exactly what is going to drive you apart from the Creator. If you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes talks about that there is meaninglessness in life, that life is meaningless. But the whole point Solomon makes in, in, in Ecclesiastes, he is saying that apart from God, apart from your central life source, everything, single thing else in the world that you try to seek out and enjoy will never be worth having. And it will never get you from the grave to grace. It never will. The whole point of the Bible is that only God can provide the life that you need. And the grand consequence of this you're on this path, but the grand consequence of chasing things that are not God is going to lead you off a cliff. It's going to lead you off a cliff. I got a picture right there. You are blindly walking in this life if your source of life is not God and if sin is your slave master. And it's going to lead you by chains into the eternal pit. That's what Revelation 21.8 says. So I have done a good job of answering this sin question, this death question. Layer by layer, it's not just rebellion, it's not just disobedience, that it is really disobedience because you are searching for life and turning your back on God to search for life in something else that is not God. And do you understand the gravity of man's condition before a holy God? That your sin, that your flawlessness is going to lead you off the cliff. I want to make this visible. 
talked about this separation that happens. Austin, if you come up here, Layton. Oh, this is gonna be fun. Oh, who else did I say? Heston. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I want these three guys to represent certain people, and I want the audience to represent God. How about that? He already knows where to be. Okay. No, 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 no. Okay. So I talked about God as a morally perfect, complete creator. Who is the standard of perfection? It's God, right? Who is the visible form of the invisible God? Okay, I want Heston, though he's not Christ, to represent Christ. You're not that good. You're not morally perfect. You're just a demonstration. Layton, you're just a terrible person. <laughs> I want Layton to represent evil incarnate. Who do you think was probably the most evil person to come through our world in the last 100 years? Hitler. Okay. I'll let Hitler represent the evil. And I'll let this space represent the chasm that I'm talking about. This giant separation that comes between God and man. Austin, great guy. This dude tries to live a holy life. I really like him. I look up to him. He's younger than me. Austin, you ever chase for life in something that's not God? You ever sin? Yes. Okay. So he's going to go over here. Right. Stand right beside that guy. And now the question is that we see the separation, and Duke, you can go ahead and go to the next slide, that there's this massive chasm. There is a sin problem and there is a death problem, and this represents that problem, represents this eternal separation both on earth and in eternity from the awesome, perfect God of the universe. And the average person in the average religion says in order to get from here to here, you have to be a morally good and righteous person. But by God's standard, what? No one is good and no one is righteous. Romans 3.10, Romans 3.23, all fall short of the glory of God. And so the, Paul, the point Paul makes in Romans is that you cannot pass. You cannot get from here to here. We ask the question, how do I get rid of this problem? But I'm telling you right now, you can spend 10,000 lifetimes, or if you're Hindu, you can spend 10,000 reincarnations, and you will never get from here to here. You will never live a good enough life that is pleasing enough to God to get you from hell to heaven, from death to life. There's nothing you do. Isaiah 59.1 says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. His ear is not too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Jesus speaks in Luke 16 about Lazarus and the rich man, and he talks about this chasm that separates the wicked and the righteous in this eternal state. But I think he means it for earth too. So how do we get rid of sin and death? How do I meet the standard? How do I cross the great divide? What's the truth here? The truth is I can't get rid of it, and I can't cross. I can't cross. I can't cross the chasm. I can't do it. But God said, I'll send the standard. I'll send the standard. I'll cross the great divide. 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You see, what God does, he takes his son. By the way, this is not really a horizontal chasm. This is vertical, just in case you were wondering. He takes the perfectly good standard, and he says, I will go myself to the earth, and I will walk, and I will talk among sinful people. Let's get back to my notes real quick. And what he does is he offers us the only bridge across this chasm that we can get, and he takes the judgment of God for us. What happens 
is this guy right here who represents Christ. He stands in front of both these guys, in case you didn't know. And God lets you be God, looks upon him as if he had lived his life. And he gives him the punishment, the punishment that he deserved. And he looks at this guy as if he had lived his life. And he gives him the reward that only this guy deserves. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's the gospel. That's what happens at the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what happens at his death. That he absorbs the sins of the world for you and for me. Ah, you and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. The Bible says that man brings sin and death into the world, but the Bible also says that God himself mm -hmm. bears the judgment for it. Paul in Ephesians says, By grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. And he says not by works because the work is already done. The work is already done. There's nothing you do. It's pretty simple. The standard dies the death as the payment for our sins. He was buried, he was raised, and he defeats death, that death problem I talked about. And so now what? Good question. Back to Romans 6, verses 5 through 9. You guys should stay there for a little while. Don't get too antsy. Poor Leighton over there. Poor little <laughs> All so bad. Romans 6, verses 5 through 9. So what? Answer the so what question. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again because death no longer has dominion over him. So what must you do? Not works. You simply accept what's already been offered to you. This has already happened. But you're still not reconciled to God because you haven't come to God. I'm not talking by works coming to God. I'm talking about repentance and faith. That's what I'm talking about. And I'll say this too. You have to be united with Christ. You have to die. You have to be buried and you have to be raised. And you're thinking baptism. Duh. Yes, Paul says baptism. But I want you to understand the deepness of this baptism thing. I don't want you to take this. Let's just say we have to get past the saying that we have said in this church for too long, that we have got to be baptized, you've got to be baptized, you've got to be baptized. You understand what I'm saying? This sounds controversial. It's not as controversial as you think. Yes, I agree. But understand that if you have not spiritually died and been risen with Christ, then all the baptisms in the world will not save you. There are millions and billions of people who have trusted in their act of baptism, their act of baptism rather than the acts of the justification that happens at their baptism. And I will say that millions of billions of people have been damned to hell because of it. You have to die. The old man must die. You have to be crucified with Christ. And when we say the water cannot wash that away, that happens inside you. That's repentance. Repentance means this change of mind. You know what the fear of the Lord is? It's repentance. It's recognized, you know what? I'm a dirty, rotten scoundrel. I'm dirty, rotten. There's nothing I can do. And I turn to God and I say, you're the only one who can fulfill what I need to be fulfilled for me. And you turn to the judge who was judged for you, and say, God, I stake my life on the death and the burial and the resurrection. The psalmist says, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. That's what David said. You want not to be saved? That's how you're saved. And that faith is our full reliance on him for our justification. We are wholly dependent on what he's already done for us, not what you can do for him. When he does that, when he accepts this, 
this guy, clothes this guy in his blood, and he walks him back across the chasm. Okay? You guys can go back over there. And I'll tell you that the truth of the chasm comes to reality. You see, Isaiah 59 says that, that it's our sin separates us from our God. But as far as from the east as from the west, our God now separates us from our sins. That's what happens on the cross. And that's what happens when you accept the cross and when you die to yourself. You cannot just be immersed into water. It's not enough. You have to be immersed into Christ Jesus' blood. We sang it earlier. And baptism does not just, I mean, baptism means immersion. Baptism means an overwhelming. That's literally what the translation of the Greek and down even to the Hebrew means. It means being immersed and being overwhelmed with Christ. With Christ. He doesn't say anything about water. That's what, that's what I'm trying to get you. I want you to understand the deepness of what baptism truly is. That it's the full acceptance of God's only way, God's only truth, and God's only life that he wants to give to you. And he'll give you the forgiveness of sins, and he'll give you the Holy Spirit. That's how seriously I take baptism. Enough to tell you what it truly is. That it's a physical and a spiritual declaration before angels, before demons, before the church, before God himself, that I am dead to sin, that I'm alive to Christ, only because of Christ, only because of what he did, not what I can do. Don't trust in the picture of the death and the burial of the resurrection. Why would you trust in the picture of something? Why would you even trust your own act of doing something? No, at the act, you are trusting in the person who died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. Not even yourself being dead, buried, and raised. Like I said, only then can the true separation take place. You guys can go sit down. Go ahead. Waiting was so participatory. My third question is this that I want to answer. What should life be like without sin and death? What does Romans talk about? And that's a good question. And I don't know why this is so widely debated, but many different churches will debate on what it truly means to be free from sin and death. What should it look like? Verse 4, verse four speaks of walking in the newness of life, being a recreated being, something never seen before, that you really don't look like the same person. You may have the same personality. You will have the same outward appearance, but inside something has happened. Something has changed. I tell you something has changed because when Jesus talks about being born again, he really does mean born again. A whole different person starts to exist because Christ is reigning through you. First, I want to tell you what sin does not look like. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Many professed Christians profess walk around today Think about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and think about God's grace as a reason to sin more. They use it as an excuse to say, I guess I can do that because you know what Christ died for. Christ died for it, so I can go ahead and do it. I can sin more all the way I want to. And some people, they'll be like, well, Christ died for me. I can toe the line. I can dip the foot in the water. I can do whatever I want because you know what? It's paid for. But I want to tell you something that that's not true. Is that repentance? Is that the 180-degree mind change that the Greek word koinoia speaks of? Shall we go on sinning without care, recklessly, habitually, negligently? By no means. Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into us? I said you died, right? Did you not die? Christ said you have to. It's what I call credit card Christianity or cheap grace. Your father gives you a credit card. And he says, only use this when you really need it. But what happens if I take dad's credit card and I spend it on booze all the way till loops. What if I go and spend that? And I'm like, I don't care about it. I'll do what it, I'll just 
run my dad's money all the way. Hebrews talks about this. He says that if this is your understanding of the gospel, then you don't have it. You don't even have the credit card. He'll take it away. He won't put up with it. So again, what does look like? What does life look like without sin and death? Here's what. Verses 19 through 22. For as you used to present your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And you didn't have to obey the law of God when you were in sin, is what he's saying. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? He said, those things in, in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get lead, you fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So now what do you do? What is this different upside-down lifestyle? What does this born-again lifestyle look like? Well, I used to give myself away to bad things. Now I give myself away to good, righteous things. That goodness now dominates my life. The Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Holy Spirit now dominate my life. Not the fruits of sin. Not the fruits of death. You choose to do what is holy when you're offered the choice, and you are given the power to choose what is good and holy. And the more regularly you practice righteousness, the more fruit you will produce, and the Holy Spirit will transform you day by day into the standard. He will transform Austin into Christ. To look as Christ, to be as Christ in this world, until one day, one day he'll be glorified in the total likeness of him. And freedom is the whole point of Romans 6. The whole point of this chapter is freedom. And that's my point too, obviously. Do you realize that because your sin is forgiven that you are not a slave to it? Did you know that? Because your sin is forgiven, you're not a slave to it. You don't have to do what it says. Paul personifies it. And Paul is talking about this freedom, and he's saying, don't live as if you are free from it. He says, live because you are free from it. Right now, in the present, here and today, on earth, as far as from the east as from the west, God has removed you from your slave master. Isn't that true? And so why are so many people walking around on this earth acting like they're not free? Do you not know? Do you not, have you not heard that the victory is complete? You can walk in newness of life. You struggle with your sex addiction, with your porn addiction, with your alcohol addiction, greed and guilt and pride and all of it, gossip and impurity and anger, your bad thoughts, maybe even struggle with hate, or maybe it's in things that are not inherently evil, and you struggle with trying to find things in life that won't fulfill your real life craving. Too many of us are still doing that. Too many of us are still hung up on our sins, thinking we can't get free from it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to all of us. Says God is faithful to get you through it and to get you out of it. And we act like he's not. But because of unbelief and self-reliance and ignorance, many Christians never live in the freedom that Jesus Christ paid for on the cross. He paid for your freedom. Will you please live like it? Dwight L. Moody was like the 19th century Billy Graham. He was the Billy Graham before Billy Graham. And he used to speak of an old black woman in the South following the Civil War. He said that before she became a former slave, she was really confused about her status, whether she was free or not. And this is what she said. Now, am I free or am I not free? When I go to my old master, he says, I am not free. And when I go to my own people, they say I am free. And I don't know whether I'm free or not. Some people told me that Abraham Lincoln signed a proclamation. Master said he didn't. That master says he didn't have a right to do that. And I will tell you that I know someone 
who has had the same experience earlier this year, and he was he was asking this question if he was really saved. Was he really free from sin? And he was totally concerned with his justification before God. He was worried, sick in his heart, and in his conscience, he was in deep turmoil because he just did not know. He was asking the same question the southern black slave was asking. Am I free? And it was so bad to the, to the point he told me that he was acknowledging this in his prayers and his own Bible studies, that even during his own sermons and conversations with other Christians, this is what he thought about. Was I free or was I not free? Am I saved or am I not saved? Was the death, burial, and resurrection enough for me? I know it's true, but was it enough? And he was wondering if his conversion was real, were his prayers authentic, was his baptism even valid? And he came to a breaking point, and he was uh, driving home, pretty much crying and talking to God, just boldly and honestly, just letting out. He said he went into his room without total resolution, and he was emotionally exhausted, and so he fell asleep. And he woke up a few hours later, and he said it was as if the seas had been stilled, that peace and mind had come to himself. And the next day, he received final confirmation of this question. Was he free or was he not free? Listening to a podcast of all things, while working out of all things, God spoke through a preacher and said in this podcast, such a great quote, it does not take great faith to save, but faith in a great God. It does not take great faith to save, but faith in a great God. And that was his question. Was my faith enough? Was my baptism valid enough? You can tell that his motivations were not directed in the right place. Not his motivations, not his motivations, but his trust was not directed in exactly the right place. He says that his eyes were opened and finally he realized the full assurance that he was free of sin. He was free of condemnation. And he found that his trust was only in the death and the burial and the resurrection of his Lord. And he said it was like as if the chains had fell off and life became so much fuller and so much filled with God because he shut the old slave master finally. I said this at the beginning. This is a very personal sermon and a passage in a series. Because the person I'm talking about was me. I struggled with that for so long. Am I free or am I not free? The old slave master said I wasn't. But the truth is that the war is already over. Sin and death is already defeated and the king is alive. But so many Christians, people even in this room, are confused, wondering, am I really free or am I not free? Well, listen to me. Jesus Christ declared an emancipation proclamation and he signed it with his own blood. And your old slave master says he did not, that he didn't have a right to. It's not true. So please stop asking, am I free? What an insult to the cross to question God's own work on the cross and ask, am I free? Jesus won, sin, death, and the devil did not. So what should life look like without sin and death? The answer is without sin and death. I'm not saying there won't be struggles, there won't be temptations, but I'm saying your life should not look like slavery to those things that used to hold you. And there shouldn't be such lingering doubt. The victory is already won, like verse 23 says. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And I want to tell you that eternal life is abundant life. And he's not just talking about heaven. He's talking about right now on earth. He says you can be free now and later. That's what Christ came to accomplish. So do you understand Go through the questions again. Do you understand that sin is not just a position in your life, but it is a person in your life? It is not just a sickness, but it is a separation. It's not just a condition, but it is a killer. And that there is no life in it. There is no freedom in it at all. There is no satisfaction or no salvation when you are a slave.
But do you understand, like we looked at when we had the representation, that the standard of sinless perfection himself came and took the place for you, the sinner, and that by his death, by his burial, and his resurrection, he pays your debt and he satisfies the judgment that God had to do. And he says, by his resurrection, as Romans 6 says, you get to be raised up to, to new life. What do you have to do to get to the beginning of God? You have to come to the end of yourself, and you have to come alive in his death and his resurrection as Christ already did, and realize that it's what Christ already did, and it's not what I can do. Do you understand that you're not a slave, that you are free, that the slave master is done, he has no control over you, and do you realize and do you understand that there is no life in the B.C. before Christ, but there is life in the A.D. after death, his death and yours. Charles Wesley, the brother of John Wesley, he's not as well known, but he was a famous hymn writer. I almost end every sermon with a hymn because they kind of can speak better than I can. And he actually wrote this two days after his own death, burial, and resurrection in Christ. The song goes like this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? That he for me who caused his pain, for me whom him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Now listen to this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. But your eye diffused a quickening gray. I woke in the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I said it week after week. This book is true and it is unified. And I've said it week after week that there is always life from the message of this book. And I've told you week after week that the gospel, as it was in Genesis 3, is in the middle of a graveyard. And the voice of freedom is only first found in the dungeon. The tomb leads to triumph, and your united death will lead to united life. Do you believe it? That's all I ask. That's what I'll close with is, do you believe it? Do you understand? And do you know? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the beautiful day that you have given us, Lord, the rain that has come upon us. It's really just a showering of your grace, Lord, that we see even in the little things. But even in the small blessings of life, we notice that you are the life that provides for it all. And we recognize you as our only source of life. We know that our sin and our death separates us from the God of the universe, but that your whole mission, and it was accomplished, was to free us from it and to give us victory and to give us freedom. So there's anyone here that has not accepted the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ and has not died to themselves and be raised to new life, I pray that that happens today as soon as possible before it's too late and help them to realize, and even those of us who struggle with wondering, help them to realize that, yes, they are free, that they are free indeed. Be with us and guide us, watch over us and keep us safe, Lord, and use us as preachers and prophesiers of your word to a dead world. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
famous for the first two verses, normal, and then the last third verse, much wider. Tell me the story of Jesus. Tell me the story of 